This is gonna be fun. This is gonna be a good one here. All right. Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow, and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Serpico? Oh, excited! Excited to be here. <laughs> that's like, that's like uh, now Pacino. I think Serpico Pacino. He like this. He like talks like from the back of his throat. <laughs> Has there been a man who's had a more dramatic voice change? <laughs> I know. Like what? I don't know when that happened or why it did. But anyway, why 1973? I usually go into like long-winded explanations why we choose the years we did, but I'm just going to keep this one really short because genuinely these movies speak for themselves. They're that good. Uh, 1974, 75, 76, these are probably more popular years culturally, but as I started digging into 73, I was stunned. If you go like a layer under the Oscar nominations and Oscar wins, which were, they were okay then you find some real gold because, for instance, my one through seven picks are all A-plus films, and I do not give that grade out lightly, but these are some game-changing masterpieces. So what are your, before we get into our top tens, what were your first thoughts about 1973? Dude, we gotta go back to this time. Like, this is this is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Never gonna happen, man. I'm like, sorry, dude. My Never God. gonna happen. Okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, maybe we won't, but... Man, everyone, you got to go back and watch these movies from the 70s. It's just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter the genre. They're all just better. They're all just so, even even 1973's worst movie is better than anything that comes out today. I'm sick about it. (laughs) And and I'll be fair to the conversation. We were talking about this right before. I had... um, I have not seen a lot of 1973, more than I would like to admit. So in preparation for this podcast, going down this rabbit hole and discovering some of these films for the first time and discovering movies that didn't make my list, but still very much enjoyed exploring, I don't want to leave it. I don't want to leave 73, 72, 74. I don't want to leave the 70s. I mean, that could be a really fun... I, that would be such a cool podcast series to do like every 70s year, 70 through 79. I was just listening to Tarantino on a podcast saying how he became really obsessed with the films of 1970 and like watched all of them. And that's never been a major year to stand out in my mind. But then hearing all the movies he listed off, I was like, wow, Jesus. Yeah, that's that's a good one, too. But that's one of the reasons why I wanted to pick 73, because when you say, you know, a lot of movie buffs agree that the 70s are the best decade for film. Okay, But, okay, what's your favorite year in that? 73 is not usually brought up as number one a lot. So that's why we're going to dig into it. And But, yeah, in terms of, like, movies going back to this level of audacity and grittiness, I just, I don't see that happening again. There's, you have all these young emerging directors who would go on to be remembered as some of the best who have ever done it. And they're making their first, second, third movies. They're really becoming their own. So, You have all that going on in this year. And before we get to what we did include, I have to really quickly touch on what we couldn't include. And man, the Oscars are are what mess this up every year, because if you look at those nominations and go, oh, those are all 1973 films like they're not. And it's confusing as shit. And (sighs) here he comes. Here here, here comes Alex Stickler. Oscar qualifying years (laughs) piss me off so much. But so, for instance, one of my favorite movies of all time, Cries and Whispers, walks away with a few nominations and few wins. That is not a 1973 movie. It is not being included here. That and Last Tango in Paris, which also got some 73 nominations. Those are 1972 films. So we're not going to be mentioning those. Um, Similarly, the movie that 
won the foreign language film Oscar this year, like had performances that were nominated for the same movie the next year. So it's just dumb. Like IMDb is not accurate with release dates. Wikipedia surprisingly is because believe me, I've investigated this a lot. So if you go to the 1973 in film wiki page, that's the list we worked off of. So if it is listed there, it can be included in our list. That's it. No one cares about this shit but me. So we're going to move on. We've kept these lists a secret as we tend to do. So while there is bound to be some crossover, we're going into these blind. But um, I, I did like hearing that you you had a lot of first time watches with these, which is fine for me. Like I had seen almost every movie I'm going to mention here before, but I a lot of these I had only seen once, like well over 15 years ago. So it was like I was seeing them in, for the first time in the way of uh, for one in particular, like I have grown a lot just in time has informed this movie so much fucking better than when I was 19 years old. I can see your face. You already know what I'm talking about, but yeah, it's uh, we're going to get into it. It's a fun year. Who wants to go first? I'll do it. Go first. Number, <laughs> number 10. What a man, what a big man. Number 10. And by the way, uh, speaking to your point, everyone, you always have those movies where you say you've never seen it. And then the person next to you just, goes, oh my god, I can't believe you've never seen that. That's just going to happen a bunch for this one. We miss stuff. People have, look, you have other interests in your life. You're very interested in pro wrestling. You're very, I'm not interested in shit. This is it. <laughs> this is it, baby. This is movies. I'm like, my fiance just left to go visit her dad for like six days. Guess what I did the whole time? The whole time. You think I did anything other than sit on my ass and watch <laughs> movies? 1973 movies. I watched the entire filmography of the next director we're going to cover. So totally understandable if you haven't seen some of these. That's all. I wish that you just would have been, my fiance just left me because of this shit. <laughs> She's gone, man. She's out. She said, too many goddamn 1973. She's I'm gone. Sick of this shit. <laughs> Can't watch this shit anymore. No. All right. Number 10 from you. I won't judge you. Number 10. I'm very, very happy about this number 10 pick because this was a movie that you recommended to me way back when. Number 10, Sisters. By Brian De Palma. One second. Would you like to know where my number 10 is? Sisters by Brian De Palma. We're off to a great fucking start. I Mm. swear. Oh, this is great. 1973. Uh, Go for it. Yeah. I remember we had gotten back from watching the De Palma documentary at the Arclight. Yeah. And uh, we went to our spot afterwards and we just started talking about all of De Palma and you broke out the list from your blog that graded all of the movies. Mm-hmm. And this was one that you had as masterpiece level. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. I just got around to it. Man, that first hour mm-hmm. has got to be some of the most nerve rattling and unsettling hours of watching anything I've ever seen. And I don't want to, we're, we're going to stay away from spoilers. So I'm not going to get into all of it in case you haven't seen it because you totally should the suspense it it uh it, it's very rare to watch anything for an hour with bated breath mm-hmm. and that's not easily achievable and Brian De Palma definitely did that with this first hour in particular and all I can say that poor fucking guy 
<laughs> I really was on the ride for him, oh, and yeah. I was I was really feeling it. I was yelling at the TV. I was doing everything that you do in horror movies, where it's like, dude, no, gal, I get out of there. <laughs> so here's I I mean, of uh, course, like brilliant that this is your number ten and my number ten. This became my number ten for two reasons. One, when you watch this movie, and this is what I told you after we saw De Palma, that documentary, when you watch Sisters, you are watching Brian De Palma become Brian De Palma. He had made six films already. A lot of them were more avant-garde. They're really, really strange. They're really bizarre. But this is the one that really cements his narrative style. You have very long set pieces, high amounts of tension, knives being used out of nowhere, (laughs) split screen, a very unapologetic, confident use of split screen. Like, hey, I'm going to do this for insanely long portions of this movie. And if you're not down, I do not give a shit. So you, I mean, and his use of it was really, really pioneering, at least for American film. So again, this is far from his first movie, but it cements Brian De Palma themes. I forgot sexual perversion, of course, which is like what makes Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma. And then number two, you gave me this criterion for Christmas a few years ago. And that stuff like that matters because of all of the movies I had to take the 10th spot, I didn't have that personal connection to it. So it's just like, it's so rewarding that I made this my 10th spot. But yeah, you want to watch Brian De Palma become himself and use themes that he would use in all of his best work later on. Sisters is it. It's like 90 minutes, I think. Yeah, very and, short. Um, is it perfect? Like, I don't even know what that word means, but I absolutely I love it. Oh, it's very twisted. And yeah, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. Uh, I'll definitely say I'd say that first hour is perfect filmmaking. It's so obviously an ode to Hitchcock and Hitchcock was still making movies in 1973. So it's such an homage to him that. You're just seeing like a young guy really, really flex his craft and not apologize for it because this this is not lazy split screen either. Like you're seeing the same the same action happen at the same time from two different perspectives and the way that he's moving the sound from one to the other to the other subliminally letting you know, okay, pay attention to this one now. It's active filmmaking and, you know, sisters, check it out. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) I love that it's your number 10. I love it. Number nine for you. Number nine. God, I hope I say it right, too. And this is another recommendation from you. Oh, boy. A Marcord. You watched by it. By Fellini. Yes. yes. Yes, I did. I did. Oh, I'm so happy. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy. And all I have to say is, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> this is... I didn't know what I was getting into. And I still don't think I can really accurately plot it out. It's essentially this Italian city. It feels like a full lived-in city with the amount of characters and the amount of events that we see and meet. It's just Italian, raunchy comedy from scene to scene, from character to character that just gets funnier and funnier as the movie goes on. I, I don't, I think that's actually a pretty accurate description. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm so pleased that you watched this. First of all, this is my number five. I love this movie. Definitely made my list. So my rule for these year lists is I have to try pretty hard to find a new to me film to add to the list. And every other movie on my list I had seen before, except this one, I hadn't. And I did some you know, cursory work on 1973 and 
especially back in this time, like Roger Ebert is a great rule of thumb to go by. And you read, I read the first sentence of his review and I went, boom, I'm locked in. Cause it says something like, this is one of the most joyful movies I've ever seen. And I was like, whoa, okay. If he says that I'm totally locked into it. And you know, I love Fellini. I've seen so much of his work. I just missed this one. And I'm not bullshitting. I texted you 30 minutes in saying, I think I'm on to one of the funniest movies I've never seen before because I am not an easy laugh for a first time at home viewing of a foreign film. It's kind of a lot to put on someone to like, okay, I have to sit here and I, I don't know what I'm getting into, but that, that early scene with that lawyer talking in the courtyard. So there's this lawyer and Fellini didn't, didn't care about breaking the fourth wall. Lawyer looks right into the camera, and he's talking about this nice Italian village. It's in uh, 30s fascist Italy, and they make a lot of fun of that, which yes. is great. This lawyer's just, like, addressing the historics of the town and what it means. And then right off screen, you hear, like, the loudest, wettest fart possible. <laughs> I didn't know if I was hearing myself correctly, and I was like, wait, what? And he, you know, he he stops. And he keeps looking at the camera and he just he pretends like he doesn't hear it. He composes himself, keeps going. And then you hear the shave and the haircut theme, like with in fart noises, like but and, and he loses his mind. He's like, I bet you won't show your face, you coward. Yeah. And it's just these kids like fucking with this old timer for the hell of it. And I mean the confession scene when that one oh. creepy kid just like walked in and was staring at the camera, and then walked out. This is a really, really Really fun movie. It's very easy to watch. It's on a lot of platforms right now. So, God, I loved everything about this. I'm so happy it made it made your list. And I, I would I would just urge people to watch it. And again, even though it's a 1973 film, it won the Foreign Film Oscar for 1974. Go figure. But it's Fellini at his best. It's I don't know, man. It might be right up there with my favorite Fellini. And I I love that guy. I mean, La Dolce Vita, eight and a half. He's he's always been one of my favorites. But this is. The humor he has in this was not really allowed in American cinema. I mean, they they are using yeah. really really crass language like that I wouldn't even repeat on this podcast. And I was I was just stunned going, but that's who Fellini was just a jolly Italian guy. Like it's great. I love this movie. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. And and I'm thinking about it too. I'm like, is there a is there a better director who knows how to work with a large cast? No, I don't think so. And his faces, the Fellini faces, are just. They're so like unparalleled. And the thing that old lady walking out of that movie theater loved it, had a good cry. Yeah. She just keeps walking. That's I went, it. Oh God, Fellini. I just love you. It's, it's hard to not appreciate him seeing what he, just the risks he takes and like, no one's going to cast an actor who looks like that, you know? Yep. Oh, great. Great. I'm so happy that made your list. Oh man. When I was 42. <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> Dude, it's great. Oh, man. Okay, well, you did my number 10, which was Sisters, so we'll go on to my number nine. I'm going to have to assume might be a little potential list spoiler for you, but this is Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, starring Elliot Gould. Great, great film. I honestly, when I started out, didn't know if this was going to make my list, but then I rewatched it. I don't think I'd seen this once, I mean, at least 15 years. And it's just, I, I, I go, I can't, how can I not include this? I mean, this is one of the great Robert Altman films. It's the great Elliot Gould performance, yeah. the performance he was born to play. Every word, every inflection, every choice. I, what I forgot, 
or maybe I would have not known because I hadn't lived there yet. This is a masterful L.A. movie. Like yep. this gets a specific pocket of L.A. so well. I had completely forgotten about those neighbors who were. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and his relationship to the neighbors is so specific and just so great. I loved them. And and then there were a few actors who were able to cross over from the 50s, 60s macho bravado into the more relaxed kind of drug-fueled trippy 70s and sterling hayden does that so well here because that guy is just off his rocker and i love him in it but yeah this movie would make a fantastic double feature with the big lebowski yeah this is this is definitely on my list this clocks in at number six for me nice and i have to agree with you i think this is the elliot gold performance the delivery the ease the relaxed demeanor of how he goes about his life is, I actually think that this would be my pick for best actor of uh, if we were giving out Oscars. I think that's totally fair. It's so specific. And it's also one of those things where it's like, I would like to go through life like this. Like, this is one <laughs> yeah. of those questions. What would Elliot Gold in The Long Goodbye say about this right now? It's all right by me. Yeah. But- what I really like about this movie, too, is that this is a straight-up pulp noir detective story. Oh, yes. Done 70s style. You could take almost all of this movie and put it in the 30s or 40s and have it done that way, and it would work. You know, because back in the, when 1973, when this came out, that era was only the equivalent of, like, God, it's the 90s to us now, basically. Mm-hmm. You knew this format, you knew this genre, but now it's done like this. I can only imagine the 70s being like, wow, what a cool new twist on the noir genre that we know or that we knew. Love this movie. And then so we are at your number eight. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> so this is a shout out to uh, childhood, Nick. And I'm going with Live and Let Die, the James right. Bond. Yes. Roger Moore is my favorite James Bond. You've always said that, yeah. I've always said it, and it's not because I think his movies are the best James Bond movies. It's not even that I think he's necessarily the best James Bond. There's just something about that guy. It's that sophistication. It's that charm. I just love watching him. I could watch Roger Moore do anything. <laughs> now, certainly this movie does not hold up in a lot of ways today. It's one of my favorite James Bond movies. It's got to be top three. It's definitely, I, I bar none, the best James Bond song. Paul McCartney's Live and Let Die. Oh, yeah. So damn catchy. That's a great track, actually. <laughs> it's really good. And also, like, um, what I love about the movie is the crocodile scene. And so it's this very, very, like, cheesy, suspense-filled moment of watching these, these alligators about to eat James Bond and how is he going to get out of it. And he finds a way to run across them by stepping on their heads <laughs> as he like jumps. lily pads or something. Like lily pads. <laughs> but man, I'll tell you, as a kid, that tension of being like, oh my God, how is our hero going to get out of this? Because that's all it is. Shout out, Live and Let Die, 1973. I'm a huge James Bond fan. I, I mean, I've seen them all like a few times and it's so interesting to hear what someone's favorite Bond is because it usually starts from childhood. But yeah, it's I, that's just really cool. I always grew up with uh, 
like from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. Yeah. My dad and Thunderball. My dad had those three on a lot. Those were his favorites. But my number eight is another one that I assume is probably going to make your cut. This is uh, The Last Detail, directed by the great Hal Ashby. Maybe we should save it for a little bit later in the conversation. <laughs> Enough said. That's what we said we were going to do. All right. So let's go to your number seven. The Sting. Nice. The Academy Award-winning movie of that year. George Roy Hill. I remember I first saw this movie. I mean, you talk about chemistry between two actors. You see it so much. I mean, people talk about it today. I think that's a podcast episode worthy of its own, like favorite actors who work well together. Yeah. But I think this is their best. I The magnetism, the charisma that they have in The Sting I like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid more than I like The Sting, but just in terms of Robert Redford and Paul Newman together and the characters that they're playing, I'll take The Sting over it. And then you add in Robert Shaw into that triple threat. And you just nailed it. Butch Cassidy is a better movie, but they are better together in The Sting, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And Robert Shaw, man, great. Yeah, yeah. I think this is like a key to heist movies. Oh, If you're going to be pulling the wool over the villain... You got to fear this villain. Robert Shaw in this is genuinely intimidating. Yeah, and this was one of my honorable mentions, one of my mm-hmm. runners-up, because, you know, when you look at the Oscar nominations, it, the Sting kind of does get shit on a lot based on its competition, but it's honestly a really immensely enjoyable film. That it is. If you like the Clooney and Pitt Ocean's Eleven, you're, you're going to like aspects of this because they're borrowing a lot from it. All right, seven was staying. We will go to we'll go to my seven, a film debut from the great Terrence Malick, and this is Badlands. <sighs> did this make your list? Oh, of course it did. Yes, it did. Okay, cool. So Badlands, yeah, I mean, a movie I saw once, and I think I saw this in like 2001. It's always held a lot of real estate in my head, just mostly because I'm such a Malick fan, but um, this is stunning fucking filmmaking. This is the first kind of official A-plus movie on my list. And Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek are basically young lovers on the run. They're hiding out after Sheen commits a, a really, like, shockingly cold-blooded murder for 1973 standards. And the movie's certainly taking a lot of inspirations from real-life killer Charles Starkweather. But I honestly forgot, like, how coldly violent this movie was and how many just... We always hear, like, in movies and westerns, like, you don't shoot guys in the back. So you're just icing guys out in the back, like, constantly. And it, watching it, I'm like, man, this, I don't, I don't remember Malick as a violent filmmaker. I would never cast him in that light. I actually don't think The Thin Red Line is particularly physically violent. I think it is wholly emotionally, disturbingly violent. But this movie has a lot of, like, violence that I just wasn't really used to or read I'd forgotten about and I don't think cinema was ready for it either but if you know Terrence Malick is this guy who creates all these like liquid narratives and it's kind of hard to track and it doesn't come together this is not that this is a very conventionally told film extremely well made it's incredible but there's nothing challenging about its structure and yeah Badlands I feel totally confident saying you can blind buy the criterion of this if you haven't seen it and you will be good to go this was my number four pick. Awesome. And this was one of the movies I had never seen before. That was, I guess that was one of the ones. Yeah. This is one of them. And I'm a huge Malik fan. And you're 100% right. Like, this is not the conventional Malik that we know now. And I had no idea what this movie was even about. Oh. I didn't even know 
that it was a like Bonnie and Clyde type of story, even though it's not that. But yeah, of course, you could draw comparisons. Um, so I had no idea. So but when the first murder happens and the way that it happens mm-hmm. genuinely disturbed me, there is a detachment with the two main characters that to me is the most interesting part of the movie. That's what makes it the most disturbing thing. That is the most interesting part of the movie. I cannot recall a time that was depicted on mainstream American film. Bonnie and Clyde are not detached. They're, no, they're very not. like, ah, invested. These two like kind of don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And for different reasons too. Mm-hmm. Because you're watching someone choose to justify an action that there is no coming back from. It's disturbing. That detachment doesn't just extend to the violence. Like the losing virginity scene. It yes. was really startling to me this time. And you you see none of the sex. The scene starts as they're almost fully dressed again. And I don't even want to spoil like what's said between them, but I was like, wow. Like I, I don't it was really startling to see that and also be reminded that really fun to see when you're watching a movie and you go, wait, I've seen something like that before. And it's like, yeah, because so many other movies have yeah. stolen from this and ripped this off. Like that's this is the source. Here it is. This is it. Yeah, and it's not that. done as good. Yeah. So if we go move to number six, that is the long goodbye, which we covered. Yes. Because that was my number nine. So then we'll go to my number six. This is The Day of the Jackal, directed by Fred Zittiman. Did you have a chance to check this one out? No, and it's you th- killing me. No, no, it's me. okay. It's, no, no, no. It's totally fine. I, I know you had a lot, to, a lot to tackle with your list, but so the movie's about an underground organization wants Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, to be killed. They hire one man to do it. And we still have about two hours and 15 minutes left of the movie. So the day of the jackal, like it reveals itself as a painstaking, entertaining procedural thriller about how a guy in this time period would go about executing such a popular figure. And you see all these little details and then you see the other side of it, of the people tracking him and they're really, really close on his tail probably much more aware for people's this was kind of loosely remade as the jackal with richard gear worst irish accent ever in movie history <laughs> bruce willis playing the jackal and Sidney poitier in one of his last roles and i really like that movie it's silly it's fun but if you have seen that and you like it there's a lot from day of the jackal that it got from even down to like pretending to be gay for that one guy just so he can get into his apartment. Like there's a lot of the small details. And then Fred Zinneman was a real master. He did the search, which was Monty Cliff's first movie, the men, which was Brando's first movie, high noon from here to eternity day. Of the Jackal is one of his best. So yeah, I just, I really like this one. And I, I do hope you get a chance to check it out in time. Oh no, I definitely will. It's on the, it's on the queue, but I have to share that. Like when, when we were, um, putting together our idea to do 1973 as a podcast, um, we were just kind of deciding that that was it. And you shoot me a text and you were like, Day of the Jackal, don't sleep on this one, fucker. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot I said that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did so that. when we finally get down to like crunch time and I'm like, oh my God, I, I can already just know I'm not going to get that one in. <laughs> you will like it when you watch it though. I promise. We're on to your number five. My hypocrisy knows no ends, and I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine. You know, I have said before that um, I don't like movies with kids, 
and that's generally true. However, if I'm really being nitpicky on my own specificity is I don't like movies with kids. I don't really mind a movie with a kid. So this fits into that category as my number five is Paper Moon. Oh, nice, nice. So I had never seen it. It was on the list of like, as I'm kind of rifling through these movies, I was like, all right, yeah. And I am not familiar with Ryan O'Neill outside of Barry Lyndon. And I had the time of my life watching this. It was delightful. It was entertaining. I loved the relationship between Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill. And I'm assuming that that's his daughter. Oh, yeah. Real life. Absolutely. Do you know Tatum O'Neill was the sister in Rescue Me? Well, yeah, I know who Tatum O'Neill is, oh, but okay, okay, I did not yeah. know. And I assumed that that was yeah. her. But sometimes you get those movies where it's like father, like father and daughter, but they're not actually related, but they have the same last name. I don't know. Right. I loved her in it. I loved him in it. And my favorite thing about the movie was Madeline Kahn. Oh, and yeah. she gets yeah. my vote for Best Supporting Actress. I had not seen this movie. I saw this movie for the first time last year when I went on my Oscar binge and I watched, you know, every movie that won a major Oscar and Tatum O'Neill did win for this, yeah. beating out um, Madeline Kahn. So that's cool that you would give it to Kahn over her. But th- that was uh, another honorable mention for me. But yeah, great one. So we have to do a little uh, crazy skipping around because my number five is Amicord. The Fellini film, which was your number nine. Your number four was Badlands, which we covered because that was my number seven. So we get right to my number four, which shares a lot in common in terms of what it did for this person's career with our number 10 pick, Sisters. And this is because earlier I said that Sisters helped make Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma. And the exact same thing can be said about Mean Streets making Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese. I love this movie. I love its imperfections. It really, it reminded me of our Cassavetes binge because it really is like, this could maybe be on a list of like the best Cassavetes movies that Cassavetes didn't make. And they were friends at the time. You know, Cassavetes pretty famously watched Scorsese's previous previous movie, Boxcar Bertha, and said, this is a huge piece of shit. You need to go film what you know. So from that, Mean Streets was born, and it has spotty sound, it has jumpy editing, it has raw, raw performances. This is, this is just down and dirty and gritty New York that helped establish the down and dirty and gritty New York genre. And I love, I always say that this is one of my favorite New York movies, even though almost all of it was shot in L.A. Like, a few exteriors weren't, but... A lot of it was shot in L.A., and I just, I don't know, I couldn't tell that when I was young, but now I can definitely tell the difference. But it's still, Robert De Niro as Johnny Boy is one of the all-time great introductory performances. It wasn't his first movie. He had actually made a few early movies with De Palma, but this is kind of the first time you're seeing Robert De Niro inhabit Robert De Niro. So, Mean Streets, please go check it out. This I had never seen it. Oh, really? So I said the two that he hadn't seen that he thinks I'm going to be mad about is Badlands and Mean Streets. That's what I They're they're two? They were? Oh, my God. That's hilarious. So So what um, did it rank for you? It did. This is my number three. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Love it. And I actually watched this just last night at midnight because I was rifling through. So I did a I did a double feature really of Sisters and Mean Streets. That's perfect. So kind of talk about they di- that De Palma Scorsese. Yeah. Uh who they became who they became because of these movies. 
I loved Mean Streets with all my heart. Really got me. I really fell into it. I don't think Harvey Keitel has ever been better. Yeah. I can't believe it took me so long to see it. And then just come across it now and being the movie that I literally saw right before I woke up and we started having this podcast is like fresh in my head. But what's fresh in my head is the feeling I had watching it. I want to put it back on and get back to it because I really love living with this movie. The 70s guys getting their start like Mean Streets is kind of the prototype of that. Yeah. So if that was your, that was my number four. That was your number three. That brings us to my number three. And I have, I have a pretty concise selling point for my number three pick. Francois Truffaut's day for night is the best movie ever made about the making of a movie. I believe that when I saw it for the first time, like 20 years ago, I believe that when I watched it for this episode, it's about all of the problems that can happen on a film set that do. And the mercurial actors, the, crew that's you know kind of sleeping around and you have unwanted visitors endless questions on and on you're really gonna love it great great film so now that will be the next movie that i watch because i absolutely love Truffaut and um jules and jim i mean that oh man i i have nothing but good things to say about that and day for night is so far and long away my favorite Truffaut film and I love his other stuff it's your favorite I say that with great respect to the others but yeah okay so number two for you it's open so number two you brought it up earlier I'm bringing it back around now I believe this was your number eight oh yes it was yes it was so that my number two the last detail by the great Hal Ashby so I well I love everything Hal Ashby's ever done. I think he is one of the most eclectic film directors that are out there. One of my favorite Jack Nicholson performances. Oh, it's man. probably top three. We see these three men in a macho way, in a funny way. We see them in a sensitive way, and we see that all happen completely organically. It's similar in the way that I feel about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where that movie takes you through all the emotional spectrum. I think this one does too. You go through it all. And Randy Quaid, (laughs) my pick for best supporting actor to win that Oscar. And I can't believe I'm saying it, but Randy Quaid. But dude, that dude in this movie is perfect. He is so well cast. Yeah, he really is. That's my rant on the last detail. I love it with all my heart. Take it away. I would never ignore Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, or Carnal Knowledge. But to me, the last details where Jack became Jack. I mean, yeah. you're seeing that like jittery, fiery, unexpected personality, that really specific danger mixed with the humor. I just love the way when he asks questions, he always goes, huh? Huh? Like to follow <laughs> it up right away. He's like, what do you think? Huh? Huh? And it, I mean, he's so charismatic, but you're like, I mean, that dude could easily like buy me a beer or bash my fucking head in right now. And I have no idea what like which one this is going to be. You know, the writer of this film, Robert Town, was a personal friend of Jack Nicholson, so it really feels like it was written for him specifically. And then you have the great Hal Ashby just doing what Hal Ashby does. I don't, as someone who studied film and watched it so closely, his filmography, almost more than anyone, completely baffles me because I'm like, how did you nail this? Shampoo is a really good example, my favorite example. But this this is like shampoo with like military dudes because you're just mm-hmm. floating around. You're going from here to here. Now we're just going to hang out in this one setting for a really long time, even though we've been at all the other settings for like two minutes. And the motivations that Nicholson 
goes into this with and where he ends up in such an organic way. It's just, it's a really, really cool movie and it's really, really effective. And I, God, I would urge people to check this one out. I re- Cause it's not, uh, Hal Ashby or Jack Nicholson. This is never mentioned first in either of the, their filmographies, but it doesn't mean it's not as good. It just doesn't. hundred percent. So that was your number two. Now we move to my number two. And that is who here is a foreign film that is not very easy to digest. And that is Ingmar Bergman's expansive scenes from a marriage. You look stunned. And I wonder why this is your number two. Ooh, what could be number one? <laughs> I oh love my it. God. I thought this I... would happen. Is this your number one? Yes, this is my number one. Yes. Okay, I, I would have put money that we would have ended the conversation with this. Please, let's have the scenes from marriage. It's so funny because our number two conversation is going to be so much long because it's your number one. It's going to be so much longer than just my number one, but that's fine. Okay, so I actually recommended scenes from a marriage as my what are you watching pick for episode 26, I believe, Malcolm and Marie. This is what this movie is. This is six scenes. They're each about 50 minutes long. They span 10 years in the marriage between Liv Allman and Erlen Josephine, their characters. And this is Bergman, so you know he's going for the throat. This is as emotionally brutal and just verbally shocking as Bergman gets. And it's an unflinching but really simple look at a troubled marriage. And if you're a fan of modern film and you haven't seen scenes from marriage, we were just talking about this with Badlands. I promise you have seen scenes from a marriage. If you saw Noah Baumbach's marriage story and haven't seen scenes from a marriage, then I promise you've seen like almost wholesale scenes lifted with, I just, I hope Bergman was given credit in that movie. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but I, Each scene was released on Swedish television, like, over the span of a month. So you'd have this 50 minutes and then a week later, this 50 minutes and they're allowed to curse on their television, you know, stuff like that. And then he truncated it down to like a three hour American release version, which actually isn't bad, but if you're going to go in it, just go with the, the five hour version that is immeasurably better. But my God, I love everything about this movie. It's a tough sell, but it's a really worthy effort. The one thing I want to talk about the most about Bergman is his writing. It's unapologetic. It's honest. He does all of the things that you don't expect someone to do in the writing. And I don't want to give away, but in the very first episode, the two main characters reach a conclusion to a conversation that has a whole entire roller coaster to it. And once we get to that conclusion, we feel finality. And then we cut to the next scene, and it is without talking about it, without any like knowledge or precursor to anything, it is the decision that they decided on. We are now seeing the reality of it being the exact opposite of what they said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking brilliant, man. It's just it 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 gives me goosebumps even thinking about it. And Bergman does this with every thing that he's ever written. And I'm gonna go on record as saying it. I think he's my favorite screenwriter of all time. His writing really is his best yeah. asset. And I say that with great admiration because he his compositions really inspired me. Him and Sven Nyquist, who was his longtime DP, inspired me to become a filmmaker. And that man knows how to shoot a face better than anyone who's ever been behind a camera. He just knows how to capture the human emotion of a face in a still setting. Well, I'll be like turning my head like, how the fuck did you get that? And I can just see the corner of his eye and it's like perfect and it never feels forced. But 
His writing, what makes it so good, is that dude does not care about hurting your feelings. He yeah. does not give a shit. You're going to shock or gasp at something he said. There's a way to do that by intentionally being shocking, by maybe using a lot of curse words. That's not what he's doing. He's going to go for that thing that you are so insecure about yourself that you've only told your husband like once and then boom, now he's going to latch onto it and you're going to be absolutely gutted. And yeah, these six scenes cover 10 years and you get to see the people evolve, the characters evolve. It's just coming after like this 90 minute devil tone poem of cries and whispers. And then the thing that he releases the next year is just here it is. And the end credits of every chapter <laughs> of Scenes from a Marriage is Bergman himself saying, you have just watched chapter one of Scenes from a Marriage. As you look at this footage of Pharaoh, which is the island in Sweden he lived on, as you look at this footage of Pharaoh, here are the credits. And he just reads them out loud. They're not on the screen. Like, the words are on the screen. He just reads them. And he's like, bye. <laughs> and he goes, this was made in 1973. And it just ends. And then the next next chapter starts, and he narrates the opening of each one. It's like, is a guy who's very well aware that everyone watching his movies was watching a movie. He never tried to pretend that you weren't. So, like, cool, watch a movie. Here we are. Fellini was the same way. I'm going to look right into the camera and talk to you. So, I love everything about Igmar Bergman. I, I, he's the, he is for sure the filmmaker I've studied and obsessed about the most. And I told you right before we fired up the mics that fortunately, unfortunately, I can't, it can't be one Bergman film, one and done. No. And then, so Saraband, his last film was a sequel to Scenes from a Marriage. And it is, you know, 30 years later. So I've urged you, you know, check that one out soon. And that's, I'll probably go to that as soon as we're done today. But yeah, that's, it's really hard to just watch one Bergman and go, Oh, yeah, I guess that muscles flex. It's like, nope, haven't seen nope. Cries and Whispers, I don't think, in like seven years. So now I know I'm going to do that, too. It's I'm going to go down a whole rabbit hole. So here we go. But, oh, man, I love this movie so much. Well, it's like Cassavetes in that way. Yeah. I just love the idea. I was always told one of my biggest influences in writing is just always be relentless to your characters however you mm -hmm. can. And Bergman is the best at it. You yeah. like that. Yeah, you said it like that little thing that you can hurt somebody with. He does it. And but then he not only does he do it, he does it in a way that's like beautiful to hear. Yeah, it like really it's, is. it's well written language. <laughs> Th that's the thing. Like, he's not like, I hate you go to hell. I mean, he might say that, but it'll be after like four paragraphs of not like we're not talking about like complicated Shakespearean esque no. dialogue. It's very pragmatic, but just so fucking well written. He's an amazing writer. He really was. Ah, I love it. Ah. All right, but let's move on to your number one. This is ridiculous. <laughs> uh yeah, well, here we go. When I first drafted this list, I've but I initially had 28 films that I threw on the list, some of which I hadn't seen, most of which I had. I knew I had to whittle that down to 10, and right away, I put one right at the top, and I went, okay, something will dethrone this, and then after a while, I decided to stop complicating this and just accept that The Exorcist by William Friedkin is easily my favorite film of the year. I fucking love, why are you shaking your head? This is like one of the greatest films ever made. Well, you've never seen it? I've never seen it. <laughs> But I asked you on the podcast if you had seen it, and you said yes. I didn't want to break your heart. 
Okay, well, <laughs> oh my god, when you took where? Do hang we- on, I had, I just have to, I have to also have to preface this too because this goes way deeper than when you asked me in the podcast and I lied to your face. You're so a fucking asshole. First- I took you to the fucking stairs <laughs> exactly. in so Georgetown, <laughs> and I was like, "Look, dude, this is where he fell down." Holy <laughs> shit! I said I would so, be nice to you for movies you hadn't seen, but when you no, like go this, on like a fucking four year lie, this is like a this is a sting. This is a long con. This, I've been con. This is this this is the unraveling of a four year long lie because. It, oh my god! I'll just say I said it earlier is like there were certain movies that I just did not want to seem uncool that I hadn't seen, and and but I knew how much it meant to you, and I was like, oh no, I can't. Yeah, of course I've seen The Exorcist, and then I just, and then, yeah, you took me to Georgetown to see The Steps, and in my head I was watching it, I was like, I'm going to have to, like, fake that I, like, know what he's talking about, and I'm like, oh, cool, (laughs) this is awesome, because they were very cool steps. (laughs) Why? I love you. I don't even care (laughs) that you haven't seen the movie, but to feel the need to, like, but, I mean, I'm not like, like, what the hell? I'm not someone you need to, like, impress in terms of movie dumb. First of all, let's start by saying, let's be a little empathetic. Okay. And we'll start by saying that as you do not your, like As your movies. face is going from red to white, let's, <laughs> but, let's calm down. <laughs> but you don't like horror movies, traditionally. Yes. Right? Yes. So, like, that's, so, okay, like, I accept that. Like, that's all good. I, I do have to say, when you were on your number five, given your thing about you don't like movies with kids, I was like, oh, shit, is this, is this Exodus? And he said, Paper Moon, and I went, he's totally not going to mention this movie, but, oh, my God. I took him up to the house. You walk up the stairs. It's a lot of stairs, folks. And you go to the house, and I'm like, that's where he's talking with Cobb. Whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, well, then, I I... Okay, we have in about a month and a half my bachelor party coming up. And I'm going to be spending a day with you solo. And I'm going to say that that night before the festivities begin, we put this on. And it's going to be the version you've never seen, the director's cut. Because it has, well, you know, I talked about this on one of my what are you watching recommendations when you said you yes me to death. God damn it. You said you'd seen it. Um, I like ruined the whole. Okay, well, here you go. The Exorcist, everyone. For those of you who haven't seen it, here's why it's my number one of 1973. It's a really good movie about demonic possession. Where do I begin? Uh, okay. No, okay, seriously. I, I, I decided to uncomplicate it and say this is my number one because here's kind of a crazy fact. I've seen this movie more times than my two through nine picks combined. I mean, this I've watched this one annually for like 20 over 20 years every halloween and it's you know this this is the best movie ever made that takes place in the city i grew up being very familiar with which is washington dc all the president's men is good too but washington dc is a very notoriously difficult city to film in it's very expensive so not a lot of movies actually do and this might be the most rewatchable horror movie of all time too for those of us who have seen it not to take anything away from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like Halloween, two other horror movies I love. But I mean, what Jason Miller is doing in this movie, he plays a priest, Nicholas, in the film. It's one of my all time favorite performances. Without question, my pick for supporting actor, he's Jason Patrick's dad. So like he has his kind of intensity and he'd already won a, a Pulitzer for writing the championship season. And 
this role was already cast. Stacy Keach for like the main like bad dude in American History X. This was his part. And Jason Miller basically found Friedkin and was like, I have to do this. Like, you have to let me play this. And just the doubt, the shame, the Catholic guilt, the eyes, this, I mean, everything that you've heard about this movie, it will live up to it when you watch it. And like, I don't necessarily think it's that kind of scary. I don't get scared by demonic possession stuff. I get scared by like, we're going to go to the woods and get fucking killed for no reason by hillbillies. I'm like, okay, no more woods for me. Um, so weird. I thought we were going to have a conversation about the exorcist, not like a one way chat. Like I'm just talking into the ether when I could talk to any other person on my, um, okay. And <laughs> Ellen Burstyn really good at it. You might be surprised to know Ellen Burstyn's really great. One screenplay, thank God, written by the William Peter Blatley, who wrote the novel. It's based on a novel, Nick. And um, yeah, it's a good movie. So I'm very happy for you to watch it and see the st- I still one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken on a phone was that night we were at those stairs. The fog was just right. It was a great time. It's a beautiful picture. Everyone, I'm sitting there like bending down going, this is when he grabs his hand. Like, do you want to repent for your sins? Like all that shit. I go through the whole thing. This is where he's talking at. at, uh, Exorcist is my number one, folks. I do. I would like if you wait and we can watch this one together. I think that would be a cool compromise because it actually is like a really good movie. I will wait. And I will take all of the shit that you're giving me for it. And I will wait and we will watch it together. Two. Let's be clear to you and for everyone listening. I am not, nor will I ever give you shit for not having seen a movie. I'm giving you shit for this fucking dupe, this four-year-long dupe (laughs) that you've held over me where you're like, I'm just going to pretend that I've seen this movie. And then I I guess either you've made the conscious decision to like, I'm just never going to watch this. Because after we went to the steps, you could have been like, all right, I got to go home and watch this shit right away. That was like four years ago and you haven't. And that's... uh. That's dedication. You know what that is? That's it's good acting, my friend. Good job. I'm really, <laughs> I'm almost impressed, honestly. Like, I feel like a giant weight has been lifted off my shoulders, to be honest. The Exorcist. Well, it's a really good movie. Really well shot. Everyone I'm who's listening already knows this, but now I'm just talking to you. But, oh, that's fun. That's fun. But uh, I knew you'd be surprised. I didn't know it would be that surprising for me. Everyone else out there can all collectively give me as much shit if you go to W-A-Y-W <laughs> underscore podcast at Twitter and uh, we can all talk about it and we can all have a good laugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, why not? That's all we're here to do. I want to burn through really quick some honorable mentions because Save the Tiger, a lot of people have not seen this film. Jack Lemon won Best Actor for it. And if I was like, hey, what's the movie Jack Lemon won the Best Actor Oscar for? Something like it hot, the apartment. Nope. It was Save the Tiger, directed by John G. Alveson, the director of Rocky. Ooh. You would really like this movie, I think. This is like a guy slow Jack Lemon slowly losing his mind. Two days in LA. He has a business that's going under that he's trying to get out of financial debt. It's just it's sweaty. It's really good. Definitely my favorite movie sweaty. by that director. I'm not even kidding. Sweaty. Oh my god, it's so sweaty. <laughs> LA Heat, man. He's just pouring sweat the whole time, drinking whiskey, smoking cigars. He rambles to himself all the time. It's great. American Graffiti is one we probably shouldn't go unmentioned, but Yep, that that's that's an honorable mention. Serpico, which you know, you hear like Sidney Lumet, Al Pacino, they hit their peak two years later in Dog Day Afternoon. That's what I'll say. I like Serpico for like what it is as a 70s film. Wasn't quite top ten material to me. 
the paper chase, which is one I watched for the first time last year about lawyers like learning how to in law school, learning how to write briefs and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. And then some fun ones, High Plains Drifter with Clint Eastwood, Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee, Lady Snowblood, which I just watched for the first time because I realized it had a like Kill Bill is based most heavily off this and it was on HBO for a while. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it still is. And then the biggest one that I was surprised didn't make my list was Don't Look Now, which has just been massively influential over Soderbergh for its editing cuts. That's the one with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. There was so much good stuff that came out in 73 and just this era. It's important to see it. Like it, it, yeah. These are all like really, really well done movies. It doesn't matter the genre. They're just like kind of what, the way we started. They're better than what's out there today. Yeah, that was fun. But we arrive at the end as we always do i will go first this time what are you watching doing a little curveball here i feel really good about this one actually if you listen to the pure cinema podcast they are the guys who are kind of responsible for talking about new beverly podcast which is a tarrant which is the theater quentin tarantino owns in los angeles that theater just reopened you just went there to see once upon a time in hollywood again it's all good stuff Pure Cinema Podcast, great podcast. They just had Tarantino on talking about their top five final films from directors. It's kind of a crazy list when you think about it. It's not, it's kind of hard to find. Like a lot of directors don't really necessarily have good last movies, but I don't want to step on their pod at all. I want everyone to listen to that. A lot of discussion was given to 8 Million Ways to Die, which was Hal Ashby's last film. It was released in 1986. I've always heard that Hal Ashby's movies got really bad after being there in 1979, and I've never given them a chance, so shame on me. But to hear these three guys talk about this movie so passionately, it was a really fun movie. <laughs> it's really insane. It's unlike anything Hal Ashby did. I don't want to say too much about it, but Jeff Bridges is the alcoholic ex-cop hunting drug dealers in L.A., Andy Garcia's first movie, and he knows it, and he steps up in such a major way. Man, he's on fire in it. There's a warehouse standoff scene in this that is one of the best sequences, all told, front to back, that anyone involved with this movie has ever done. So I really, really recommend this. It's an easy film. It's like hour 45 minutes. It's on Tubi. I watched it a few days ago for free. This movie's nuts, and yeah, I just I would love for people to check this out. Eight Million Ways to Die. That's awesome. So I'm going to go with a movie that I'm actually watching myself. Um, this is the first time ever we're doing this for What Are You Watching? So during this whole entire 1973, there was the title of this movie called The Laughing Policeman that just like grabbed me. And I looked it up. It stars Walter Matthau and he plays a cop and it looks like it's kind of just a genre pulp detective type story. I recommend The Laughing Policeman because I'm going to watch it. And then I encourage all of you who are who are following along with us that are watching to tell me what you think of it on Twitter. And we'll see what we think about this together. Cool. I haven't seen it either. So I'll watch it, too. And yeah, we'll all be able to have a nice discussion about that as well. Well, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That went different directions than I thought it would. I loved how similar our lists were. I love that you gave the Fellini film a shot. I, I'm forgetting about one movie I want to tell you about. There's a really cool movie made in 1973 called The Exorcist. Oh, we will do God. a bonus episode. I will force <laughs> Nick Dosa to watch the, the Exorcist and we will do a bonus episode. But for now, as always, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening and happy watching. 
Unfucking believable. I thought you were shaking your head because you saw it and like don't like it because you don't like horror movies. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to celebrate our one-year anniversary of podcasting. It's going to be a fun, quick episode. We're going to update our top 10 lists of all time. Fun stuff. Stay tuned.